Hi, I'm Cardiff Garcia, and this is The New Bazaar. Coming up on today's show... Incentives drive behavior and they drive culture. And so I think as long as those incentives are stacked up the way that they are, we can sort of expect bankers to behave the way that they do. Dakin Campbell on the lessons of a big new change on Wall Street. Today's guest is Dakin Campbell. Dakin is the chief finance correspondent at Insider, and he's also, full disclosure, a really good friend of mine, and he's got a new book out. The book is called Going Public, How Silicon Valley Rebels Loosened Wall Street's Grip on the IPO and Sparked a Revolution. And that's also the topic of today's show. Now, here's some quick basic finance you have to know before listening. Nothing too complicated. When a company is relatively young, let's say it's a startup and it is privately owned, the owners are usually some combination of the company's founders, venture capitalists who bet on the company, and maybe early employees who get paid in shares of the company as opposed to just getting a salary. And at some point, a private company like this can decide to go public. In other words, to list on the stock market so that you and I and anybody else can buy and sell its stock and so that the company itself can raise money to fund itself and to give those founders and employees with early shares a place to sell them and cash in. That process of going public is, of course, an IPO, an initial public offering. And when a company decides it wants to finally go public, it hires investment banks like Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs to start the process. And Dakin's book is about that process. And it's about how a lot of private companies through the years have not loved the way that process works. These companies have often been skeptical that the IPO process works as well for them as it does for the investment banks that they themselves have hired. And yet, that process also did not change meaningfully for decades, at least not for the biggest and most prominent companies that have gone public. There were some one-off attempts to challenge this model, like when Google went public in 2004, but it wasn't really until just about four years ago that a company, in this case the company Spotify, really broke the mold and kicked off a new trend that is still early, but seems like it's here to stay. And as you'll hear at the very start of our chat, Dakin's book is also about why getting this process right matters for the whole economy, not just for the companies that want to go public and for Wall Street, but also for people who want a chance to participate financially in the economy. Here is the chat. Dakin Campbell, welcome to the new bazaar. Thank you. Excited to be here. Here's where I want to start. It's with this incredible stat from early in your book, Dakin. From about the mid-1990s, the number of companies listed on U.S. stock markets fell by half over the next couple of decades. So to put that another way, there were half as many companies that you could buy and sell on the stock market as there were back in the 1990s. And I think this really sets the stage for the rest of the book. So why don't we begin by telling people why that trend matters so much, why it's so important? This is a great place to start. I think the big thing is American investors, retirees, individual investors, institutions invest in the stock market. That's not going to be a surprise to your listeners. But when the number of listed companies declines as much as it has, 50% or so, as you mentioned, 
that gives half as many opportunities for American investors to put their money on on companies and hopefully make investment returns. Yeah, companies that will grow over time and give investment returns over time so that if you're starting to invest when you're, I don't know, 30, 35 years old in a 401k, well, if you have half as many companies to invest in, that's half as many companies that might grow, be productive, and give you returns over time so that when it is time to retire, you have more money in your bank account at the end of it, right? That's right, exactly. And the SEC, which is really part of its mandate is to look out for investors, is has been very worried about this trend over the years. And so various commissioners and other officials have tried to turn that trend around and get the number of public companies to start going back up. Yeah, the SEC, by the way, real quick, the Securities and Exchange Commission, which is the government arm that's in charge of protecting individual investors and overseeing the ways that public companies do things, right? Like it's in charge of regulating them. That's right. Yes. Yeah. I will uh, I will spell some of these terms out as we go along. <laughs> Don't worry. That's my job. Uh, but what is the SEC uh, worried about specifically? They're looking out for individual investors. In some cases, they force companies to put out filings so that individual investors are knowledgeable about what those companies do. But they're also looking for ways to encourage companies to go public so that investors can put their money behind these companies and make some money. Yeah. And we should sort of hasten to answer the natural follow-up question, which is, why is this happening? Why has there been so much shrinkage in the number of companies that go public, that start trading on U.S. stock exchanges? So there's a big debate about this. You know, some people will tell you that it's because the regulation on public companies has become so onerous in the last 20 years that it discourages companies from wanting to go public. They have to put out more filings. They're subjected to more scrutiny. And so if they can stay private, they will choose to stay private so that they don't have to sort of answer all these questions. But other people would argue that there was just a huge amount of money flowing into the private market. So said as simply as I can, private companies before they went public had so much access to capital that they would use to grow that they didn't need to sell their shares to investors on, a, on an exchange. They could go to venture capitalists or some few mutual funds or other investors who are willing to give them money in the private markets that they could then use to hire and develop technology and grow. Yeah, that was scrupulously said like an objective reporter right there, you know, both <laughs> sides of the argument. But I should note that those are not mutually exclusive. It's possible both that regulations seem too onerous to private companies, to young startups and other private companies. And so they would choose not to go public. But also, if they don't have to list on a U.S. stock exchange to raise money because there's so much money that can be raised from private investors, then they also would just be encouraged not to do that. So it could be the combination of those two things that has led to sort of a drop-off in the total number of companies that are listed. By the way, that explains why more private companies are not going public. It doesn't explain why there's been such a big decline 
in uh, the number of shares on a stock exchange, we should we should explain why it shrinks naturally over time. It's just because of competition, right? Like companies go out of business all the time, but you would expect new companies to take their place. But those new companies that would take their place are just staying private. Is that the basic dynamic here? Yes. The other thing to add here is some of the incumbents in the industries have gotten so big that what they've done is they've gone and bought these private companies before they have a chance to go public. So the Microsofts of the world, the Salesforces, others have bought up a bunch of small technology firms before they could go public and folded them into their operation. So that's a part of the trend as well. Yeah, I, I got to say there's a few other sort of trends happening in the background that seem to matter here. And you just listed one of them, which is that, you know, M&A can contribute to this mergers and acquisitions. So if you're a huge public company like Microsoft and you buy a smaller private company, you can just fold it into your tent. But that also leads to these big tech companies becoming even bigger. And so it's interesting that the tech sector used to be considered the rebellious, disruptive sector in the 1990s. And a lot of tech still is like that. But it's also a very mature sector. It's a sector that has some of the very biggest companies in the stock market, some of the very biggest companies in the world, things that used to belong to industrial companies. The biggest company in the stock market used to be like, I think, Exxon or something like that. And now at the top of the list, it's dominated by tech companies. So it's like the rise of the tech sector, which is very much a focus of your book, seems to be playing a role here too, right? That's right. Absolutely. If you go back to the late 90s, you know, the first dot-com boom, there were tons of companies going public very, very early in their life cycles. They were very small companies and they were going to the public markets, you know, not always successfully. But now many of those companies of a similar stage are being bought up by the big incumbents. Yeah. And we should note also that even for those companies that wait longer before they go on the stock exchange, so they, they remain private companies longer, and their growth period is while they're still private, it means that by the time they do go public for the ones that do, well, then small investors, you know, so-called retail investors, like normal people, people who aren't rich or big institutions or whatever, when they start buying these companies, it's after that period of super aggressive growth because these are mature companies, even by the time they get to the stock exchange. And that seems like another another issue that's relevant here. That's for sure. And, you know, going back to the concerns of the SEC and others who are looking out for individual investors, they are really focused on the growth rate. That That's one of the things they mention in their writings. And they want individual investors to get in early and enjoy that high growth rate because that's what's going to contribute to their wealth, to their retirement, to them building a nest egg. And when they can't take advantage of that because the company is private and they don't have access, they can't buy into it until it starts slowing down, then that makes it much harder to grow a big retirement account or to build wealth. This all leads me to kind of another big theme of the last couple of decades, which is that the public markets, you know, the stock market that has all these different institutional and individual buyers and sellers, and there's a lot of trading going on all the time, are starting to converge a little bit with the private markets, which traditionally the private markets were just limited to 
early investors in companies, the original founders, venture capitalists. But those original stakes were very hard to trade. Now there are actually ways that those early stakes can be bought and sold on private marketplaces. Obviously not at the scale of public markets, but it does exist. And I'm talking about the thing that we mentioned earlier, where in the past, if you were still a private company, it tended to be like a very young company, not a very mature company, quite often in an economic sector that might not be very mature. But now it seems like there's a lot of overlap where like in the private markets, you might get startups that are in, I don't know, consumer discretionary or something like that, some kind of like a typical economic sector. But then in the public markets, you get that, but you also get the tech sector, which used to be very concentrated in like small private startups. And now the tech sector has all these big mature firms. So like, can you talk a little bit about how you've seen the convergence of these two parts of like the capital markets and and the landscape in financial markets? Yeah, it's really interesting when you think about exchanges or other marketplaces set up to trade private shares. Uh, If you step back and think about it, that sounds an awful lot like public markets and the right. and the New York Stock Exchange or something like that. And so as private markets have grown and these companies have come in and, and set up exchanges, it is a, as you say, a sort of a merging of the two. You know, private companies have a lot of say over who can and can't trade their shares. When they're, just to take it off the table, when you're public, Anybody can trade your shares. They trade every day on the stock exchange for most big companies. But when they're private, companies have a lot of say over when and how employees can trade their shares. So many companies are very tight about that, and they don't like employees trading shares or options. But one of the things that Spotify did, and we'll get to this later, is they were very open about letting their employees trade shares or reduce or increase their stake in the company. And that actually allowed them to successfully innovate on the IPO process. This is an important point, though. When a company is still young and it's a private company, very often it will incentivize and reward its employees with stakes in the company so that they partly don't have to give them cash, which can be a scarce thing when a company is very young. So they say, hey, listen, we maybe can't pay you as much as these bigger companies, more established companies. But if we ever hit the big time, you'll own a stake in the company and that's going to be worth something. And what you're saying is that some companies, notably Spotify, have said to their employees, listen, if you need the cash sooner, okay, before we go on the stock exchange and before we're like a huge mature company, if you're ready to sell your shares, we will let you, we will approve the sale of your stake if you just need the money immediately, right? That's right. One last point on all these trends that have been sort of dominating the financial landscape in the last few decades. You know, I'm a macro guy. You know, I like talking about the economy and how it overlaps with finance. Well, Interest rates, until quite recently, have been largely falling across the economy for the last few decades. And what this means is that if you're an investor and you want to make money, it's harder to do that by just investing in something very safe, like a bond or a U.S. government bond, 
because now the interest rate you get paid on those bonds is quite low. So if you want to make some money, it means that you have to invest in something riskier. And this applies to small investors. It applies to big investors. It involves you know, the institutions that manage money on behalf of others, like mutual funds or pension funds. And so when they're trying to make enough of a return on their money, they have to go looking for more and more opportunities. And so it seems like what's scarce now is not actually money. It's not the capital that these companies need. It's the companies themselves and their ideas and their potential for growth that's sort of scarce. And I'm kind of curious to know if that's something that you thought about as you were researching your book. So I did not think about the secular decline in interest rates too much when putting together my book. But I did ask people about this decline in the number of public companies and sort of what it meant. And really, the answer that I got back was it makes for a less dynamic economy. You want companies to be able to raise money wherever they can get it. And you want small companies to be able to grow and you want investors to be able to get to access to small and big companies. And so when I thought about what the implications of this trend were and how it fit into broader economic terms, that's really what I got back from a lot of people that I talked to, that this was just not as dynamic as it could be. Yeah. And your book, and here's where I now want to start looking at the stories in your book, is about the process by which companies go public. In other words, by which a private company that wants to start trading on a stock exchange, either to raise new money so that the company can fund its operations or to give its early stakeholders, its early shareholders, the people who did invest in it while it was private, a chance to sell their stakes into the stock market and therefore be compensated for having taken that risk on that private company. And this matters too, because if the process by which companies go public is either unfair or perceived to be unfair, then that also could be contributing to this trend, right? This trend of companies not going public and making themselves available to regular investors who want to buy and sell things on the stock market. And it sort of sets them up for staying private for longer, right? That's right. I mean, it's one option. The traditional IPO is one option for going public. And it's it's the option that most companies use now. It's the companies that just about every company used five years ago. And if you're a company that doesn't fit that that option, either you've got, you know, you're not growing quite as fast, or there are either other idiosyncrasies to your business model or to the industry that you're in, then maybe you looked at the traditional IPO and you thought to yourself, like, that's not really going to work for me. That's not going to put me in front of the types of investors that I want to be in front of, or that's not going to deliver a share price that I'm happy about, or some investor might look at me and say, like, you're not ready for the public markets because you can't go through this one door effectively. And here's where I want to turn to explaining how the traditional IPO model actually works. And in the book, you explain it by telling the story of how Steve Jobs and Apple went public all the way back in 1980. So back then, Apple wants to go public and start selling its stock, its shares on the stock market 
so that it can raise new money to fund itself. So let's begin there. What does Steve Jobs do? Take us through the steps. The first thing he does is hire investment bankers. In Apple's case, he hired Morgan Stanley and Hambricht and Quist. And those investment bankers help Apple put together the SEC filing, the prospectus that gives all the information to investors about Apple and its financials. Then those investment bankers go out and start talking to investors. They tell them the Apple story. They ask investors if they'd be interested in buying Apple and perhaps at what price. As it gets closer to the time when Apple needs to go public or when the bankers and the company have set the date for going public, the investment bankers start dialing in what prices investors are willing to pay. And then the night before or the night of the IPO, the night before the stock starts trading, they sit down with company executives like Steve Jobs and decide where they're going to price the shares and how many shares they're going to give to each investor. Let's flesh this out a little further. Morgan Stanley and the other investment banks don't just assess how much money investors might be willing to pay for Apple shares. They also choose specifically which investors are actually going to be allowed to buy those new Apple shares in the IPO. So those investors get first dibs. They buy those shares at the agreed offering price set by the investment banks. In the case of Apple, by the way, that price was $22. And that's the IPO. And then the next day, the investors have the option of selling those shares on the stock market. So the IPO itself is not the same as when those shares actually start trading on the stock exchange, which comes later. Uh, People get this wrong all the time, right? That's right. And so the actual order of operations is Apple sells the shares to the investment banks. That's how they get their name as being the underwriters. They're taking ownership of the shares, and then they almost instantaneously turn around and sell those to the investors. And so when they do that that night, then those investors have those shares, and the investment banks go through the process of confirming that with the investors so that when the shares start trading the next day, those investors who got the shares the night before can start trading them if they want. They can hold on to them, but they can start trading them in the market if they want. And that leads me to the next point, which is about whether the offering price of $22 was the right price. Because if you're one of those investors who got handpicked by the investment banks to buy Apple's shares in the IPO, and the next day Apple's shares price on the stock market for higher than $22, you can just sell right away and you pretty much instantly make a profit. That's right. Yeah, I think Apple almost priced at $30 the next day when it when it was trading. Oh, wow. And so for holding the stock for less than a day, you could get a very attractive return, you know, $8 on, on $22. I mean, it's, it's very easy money. That's like a 35% return in a single day. I mean, that's awesome. Or I should say, actually, it's awesome if you're one of those early investors. But if you're Apple, that might not be so great. Because, I mean, remember, you sold your shares already for $22 a share. And then now in the stock market, the very next day, those same shares are going for $30. So if you're Steve Jobs and Apple, you might be thinking, what the hell? Like, I kind of wish we'd sold the shares for a higher price initially in the IPO, because then we'd have more money to fund ourselves and hire people and make better computers and all that. 
And so I, I think here's where we can start talking about why companies that are going public have often complained about this process, about the traditional IPO process. But I want to first say that there are a couple of legit reasons why investment banks might sometimes set an IPO price that's below where the shares will end up trading on the stock market the next day. One is that it really is hard to predict where those shares will be trading the next day. I mean, this is not like a perfect science. And there is a risk involved in getting it totally wrong because it also looks really bad if the price of the shares falls a lot on that first day, if they really tank. And it can even spook people that like work at the company because then it looks like the stock market has declared their company to be a bad company. Another reason for setting the price kind of low is that if investors can anticipate that there will be a first day jump or a pop in the stock, then it might add liquidity. It means that investors will be interested in buying the stock in the first place. So you could say that maybe a small first day increase in the stock price is the Goldilocks or the ideal outcome. But there's also one really big reason that private companies can be so skeptical of the investment banks, which is that The investors that the investment banks choose to be able to buy the shares in the IPO are also clients of the investment banks in other financial transactions away from the IPO. And so the investment banks might have an incentive to keep those investors happy, not just by letting them buy shares in the IPO, but also by giving them a lower price on those shares. Is that about right? That's right. I mean, an easy way to think about it is both the investors buying the shares and the company selling the shares, both of them are the bank's clients. And so they have to think about the best, what's in the best interest of both of those sets of clients. And when they meet in the middle, it's not, it's not clear. It's what's known as dual agency. And in the book, I explain it in terms of the real estate market, which might be a lot easier for people to understand. It's like having a broker that represents both the seller of the house and the buyer of the house. In real estate, you know, if you talk to the National Association of Realtors, they will tell you dual agency, while it happens, is frowned upon. They will tell people who are buying houses, hey, go get your own broker, a buyer's broker, and they will represent your interest 100% so that when you're talking to the seller's broker who is representing the sellers, there's no conflict of interest. And so in the IPO market, you still have this dual agency problem. And it leads to a lot of questions about how the price of the IPO is set and how the shares are allocated to which investors. Well, according to your book, Steve Jobs himself did ask questions like that. Yes. The book starts with this anecdote of of Steve Jobs in a meeting with his investment bankers. And they say, Steve, I think we should price the shares at $18. And Jobs says, well, you know, I've been talking to people and I think I can get 22 or or 24. The bankers say, well, yeah, we're recommending 18. (laughs) And Jobs says, well, if you sell them at 18, won't all of the investors that you give them to at 18 be very happy when they sell for 22 or 24 or 26 the next day? And there's silence in the room (laughs) until finally the investment bankers for Morgan Stanley in this case jump in and say, well, yes, that is true. And so I love that story because it just shows you one of the greatest business minds of his generation sort of saw the conflict inherent in the IPO process as early as 1980. 
What do investment bankers themselves typically say in response to that criticism that this traditional IPO model ends up underpricing the IPO and helping investors at the expense of the companies that actually hired the investment banks in the first place? There's a lot to be said about momentum. So if you underprice the shares, the next day they'll pop. If you do it right, they'll pop just a little bit. And then ideally over the next trading days and trading weeks, the share price continues marching higher. That makes the investors who got the shares the night before the shares started trading, so the IPO, very happy because now their their investment is already generating a positive return. It also psychologically, the thinking goes, helps company insiders, executives, and employees who see their share price going higher. They've got options or they've got restricted stock units. They've got some stake in this company, and they're seeing that go higher. The argument is that contributes to company morale, and that's what you want to see. Okay. So there's this model which has these sort of competing sets of incentives, okay? It is the model for a very long time. But then a little company called Google shows up on the scene in the late 90s. uh, And by the early 2000s, it wants to start selling its shares on the stock market. And its method of going public is a direct challenge to this traditional model. And Google essentially says that like, hey, why are we doing this thing that's so personal that's so manual, where we go to all these investors to see what they'd be willing to pay. Why don't we put in place a system that's more like an actual marketplace where there's supply and demand and you arrive at a price that way? So they use something known as an auction, okay, a Dutch auction, I believe. Can you kind of explain what that is in the story of Google's decision to try that instead of the traditional model? So it's worth going back in time. Google went public in 2004. That was just a few years after the dot-com crash, and lots of people lost a lot of money. And coming out of that, there were lots of investigations into Wall Street investment bank behavior. And they found these conflicts, basically handing out IPO shares to favored clients and the entire process just being very conflicted. And so Google saw that, and they said, we don't want to do that. We, We don't want to get involved in that. They also looked at their business model, which even by then, 2004, was auctioning off thousands of ads every day uh, for placement on their search engine homepage. And they said, if we're auctioning thousands of things a day, why can't we just auction our shares? And so they started, they designed what was called a Dutch auction. They asked a lot of people. They looked at the flower merchants in Holland and how they auctioned off flowers and they came up with a Dutch auction. Okay, and what is that? Yeah, and what that is is you start at a very high price and you march the price down until you can sell all the shares. So very simply, if they wanted to sell shares at $10 and they wanted to sell 10 million shares, if they could only sell 2 million shares at $10, they would take the price down to $9. If they could then sell the remaining 8 million shares at nine, then they would sell all 10 million shares at $9. Okay. 
And the virtues of this versus the traditional model were what? What was their thinking on the advantages of trying this instead of going to an investment bank and having them go to investors to test their appetite and so on? The advantage is you get a whole bunch of orders in and you get a great understanding of how everybody, what price everybody wants to pay for those shares. So Google designed a web page so that individual investors, retail investors could put in orders for Google shares. They made the mutual funds and the hedge funds put their orders into the into a similar system. And so the idea there is you're getting a much wider collection of investor interest reflected in how you go about pricing your shares. And what happened? <laughs> It did not. <laughs> it did not go as planned. It did not go as planned. Google's initial range was one hundred eight to one hundred and thirty-five dollars a share. When they finally did the IPO, they sold them at eighty-five dollars a share. They did not get nearly the amount of orders at the higher prices that they thought they would get. And coming out of that, everybody looked at it and said, "This is a failure." Look at what happened. Google tried to innovate the IPO process. We've been doing it the same way for years and years. Shame on them. And they learned their lesson. Now, if you go back and talk to folks who worked on the Google deal and you look at Google's share price over the resulting many years of trading, you'll you'll see that they IPO'd at 85, then they went to 100. They never looked back. So by some measures... Google's IPO went perfectly well. When you say went perfectly well, you mean that like they started selling at 85 and then the stock price afterwards went to 100 and then it kept going up and up and up after that. So if you're just looking at how the stock price grew after the IPO, no big deal. But I remember how that experience colored the thinking of a lot of people who then said, well, the traditional IPO is the way to go. People just didn't understand its virtues. The story you tell in the book is a more complicated one, which is that the way that Google went about this Dutch auction was also held down by a number of cumbersome encounters with regulators. They had to keep filing amendments to their initial prospectus. Correct. Right? And they kept having to file new amendments, which were asked for by the regulators, but gave the impression that the whole thing was very chaotic and that this was too risky to do. The technology to actually pull off this auction was still somewhat rudimentary. And that also, I think, slowed things down and also just made it harder to pull off. And so you have the interaction of the heavy regulations and the technological kind of backwardness. It just wasn't ready for this yet. And then you have the fact that the price ended up being initially, much lower than Google had hoped for. And so there was a certain sense of unmet expectations. And everybody looked at this and thought, well, I guess the traditional model is the thing we're going to be stuck with forever, or for a while at least. And others just at least were disincentivized from trying the same thing. Is that about right? Is that an accurate assessment of the story you tell? Yeah, that's that's a great way of putting it. So that's Google. All right. Zoom ahead, a company called Spotify in the mid 2010s decides that it does want to do something different. 
And specifically, it wants to try something called a direct listing. Other companies had done that before, but they were pretty small. No company anywhere close to the size of Spotify had ever pulled this off. So Spotify, what was its thinking and what is a direct listing? So Spotify had as their CFO this guy named Barry McCarthy. He was the CFO at Netflix for a long time. He was there when Netflix went public. He was largely responsible for figuring out how to finance Netflix's experiment with streaming content. And so by the time he gets to Spotify, he has a very good understanding of the capital markets. He knows a lot of investors. He's gone through an IPO with Netflix. He's seen how lots of other IPOs go, have gone. And he just doesn't like the IPO process. He decides it's inefficient. He knows enough about how everything works that he's bold enough or stubborn enough to think that he can do something different. And he eventually convinces his boss, Daniel Ek, the founder of Spotify, to get on board with it. And what a direct listing is, is effectively a listing of the shares directly onto, ex onto the exchange. And so there isn't this night before meeting where you're deciding what investors get how many shares or at what price they get how many shares. There's one auction on the day that the stock starts trading on the exchange and anybody can come in and, and say they want to buy the shares and insiders can offer up, depending on the price, can say, yes, I'm willing to, sh to sell my shares. And over the course of several hours in the morning, the price at which the shares start trading is arrived at. Yeah, and Dakin, again, I want to add some hopefully clarifying details here for listeners because this can all get a little bit weedy. So the first thing to emphasize is that in a direct listing, the company, Spotify here, is not raising new money for itself by selling newly created shares. In a direct listing, the only shares that are going to start selling in the stock market are the shares already owned by those insiders, as you called them. And those insiders are Spotify executives, employees, and maybe early private investors in Spotify. All of them now have a chance to sell their stock on the stock market. And the reason Spotify did not need to raise new money is that it had just raised about a billion dollars from having sold a convertible bond. And the details of what a convertible bond actually is are not really important for our purposes. <laughs> Definitely buy Dakin's book if you want all the details. But the point is that Spotify did not need new money because it had this other channel to raise funds that was available to it. And so it had what it needed to challenge that traditional IPO model. And yet... We should note here that investment banks were still involved. They were not choosing handpicked investors to buy in at a special price the night before, as you said, but they were still involved. And the fees that they charge to the company as a share of the size of the deal are smaller than they can charge in a traditional IPO. But yeah, they still have a role. So take us through that. How did the role of the investment banks change? So in a direct listing case or for Spotify, the investment banks acted not as underwriters, which is the role that they play in the IPO, but as financial advisors. They took no financial risk when working with Spotify, whereas they do ostensibly take financial risk when they're 
doing a traditional IPO, although that's sort of gone away now with with the current technology and, and digitization. So really what you need to do to pull off a direct listing is is you need to figure out what shareholders want to sell and you need to figure out what other shareholders want to buy. And so what the investment banks ended up spending months and months on is talking to Spotify insiders, venture capital firms, record companies, employees who owned a stake in Spotify and asking them, hey, do you want to sell in this listing? How much do you think you'd want to sell? At what price you would want to sell? And then on the other hand, they also spoke to investors who maybe wanted to buy. They weren't speaking to retail investors, but they were talking to you know mutual funds and other big institutions. That might sound a lot like the IPO process. The way that it's different is that all of the selling interest and all of the buying interest is matched regardless of who the buyers or sellers are. So they come to a price based simply on who's willing to buy at that price and who's willing to sell at that price. There's no handpicking investors or selling, settling on a lower price because it makes one investor happy or something like that. Hopefully, that helps make a little bit of a distinction. Yeah. And also, the fees that Wall Street, the investment banks charge are lower for a direct listing relative to a traditional IPO model. Can you sort of uh, tell us what the distinction is there as well? Yes. So, a traditional IPO has, you know, five or 10 banks on the deal, and they usually charge as a group somewhere between 5 and 7% of the deal. A direct listing is much smaller, and it's usually arranged with two or three banks. So those two or three banks get a bigger part of a smaller pie. And if you talk to the bankers, they will tell you that bigger part of a smaller pie is roughly equivalent to the percentage that they would have to share with three times as many banks. Yeah, and you note a few times how anytime somebody like Barry McCarthy or another executive at a company that wants to go public has a meeting with the investment banks and says, hey, I want to do a different kind of IPO, there's sort of like a response from the bankers of like, oh, God, here they go again. Like somebody wants to do a different way. There's a lot of instinctive resistance to it, partly because the investment banks do know that it's complicated, that you're setting yourself up for a lot of work to do this in a way that's different from the past, but also because their business model, their investment banking business model is based on the traditional way of doing IPOs. And I'd love to hear more about what happens whenever a private company goes to the investment banks and says, hey, I want to do this differently, like what happened with Barry McCarthy. Yeah. So one of the reasons I wrote this book is because I wanted a reason to talk to people about what happened in those meetings with their investment bankers, because there's been so much concern and so much talk around how the IPO process is conflicted and all of the things we've discussed up until now. But it's very hard to understand what these conversations are actually like until you have reason to ask people about various board meetings or various company examples. And so the nice thing about this book is it allowed me to ask people about that. And what I learned is it's a very nuanced dance. When 
Barry McCarthy had his board meeting with his bankers, and he had already effectively convinced the board that he wanted to do a direct listing. But the board wanted these bankers to come in and either bless what he was proposing or give a third-party opinion to the board and say, Barry's crazy, you should do a traditional <laughs> IPO. And so when the bankers came in, they were all very, very careful not to say, Barry is crazy, you should do a traditional IPO. It's a nuanced message that they tell, but they often and almost always come down on recommending a traditional IPO. But it's not because they've got because of an incentive system or something, often it's, you could do a direct listing, but that's too risky. This is your chance to go public and... You only get to do it once. Exactly. Don't take the risk. And so often that's the message that comes through to company executives, and many agree to that. They say, you're right. Why, why should I take risk here? But Barry McCarthy and the rest of the folks at Spotify sort of had enough of a conviction in this new way of doing things that they that they forged ahead. What is the specific risk of a direct listing that those investment banks were warning against whenever they resisted doing it? So the big thing you want when your shares start trading publicly, no matter how you do it, a direct listing, an IPO, something else, is you want a lot of investors to want to buy the shares at the time that you are listing it. It's called liquidity or volume would be an easier way to think about it. You want many millions of shares to trade on that opening trade because it gives the stock price some stability. It sets a, a foundation for how the share price trades in the coming days and weeks and months. And so one of the big risks that people worried about with the early direct listings was because it was different, you wouldn't be able to convince investors to buy it on the exchange. Or you wouldn't be able to convince people who are selling to unload their shares at certain prices. It would just be too hard to bring buyers and sellers together in a way that brought stability to the share price and set it up for success. Yeah. And give us the outcome. What happened in the case of Spotify's attempt uh, at a direct listing? Was it, was it a success, uh, the opposite of what happened with Google? How did people uh, come away thinking it, it had gone? People came away thinking that it went really well. You know, Spotify priced much higher than people thought it might. The shares traded relatively smoothly. There were no hiccups. And the next day, the shares were public and they kept trading. And, you know, no big catastrophe happened. Okay. And so that was, that was the first one and it sort of established the model. And the Spotify direct listing was in 2018. And since then, there's been, I think, more than a dozen of these direct listings, including some other pretty big name companies uh, like Slack, Warby Parker, Roblox, Coinbase. You list some of them in your book. And as you also note in the book, there definitely would have been more had it not been for COVID and had it not been for like the big decline in the stock market more recently, especially for tech stocks. But even with all that happening, it seems that a direct listing is now a legitimate option, whereas before Spotify, it was just kind of seen as a kind of quirky, idiosyncratic idea, you know? That's right. And I think, honestly, some of the bankers and other people involved in Spotify's deal, 
I think, thought that maybe it was just going to be a one-off kind of thing that was a little quirky. And because of Spotify's particular idiosyncrasies, they were just going to be one and done. But the next year, Slack did a direct listing. And once Slack did it, it sort of told people that, that this thing was here to stay. Yeah, that it was possible. There's one other model of going public that's also been tried in which you describe in your book. And it's a kind of modified version of the traditional IPO, but that is influenced by the auction-based model. It was tried by a company called Unity. And I don't want to get too much into like the actual story of it. I'd just love to hear you describe what that model is and how it differs from either the traditional IPO or the direct listing that we just discussed. So a hybrid IPO is much like a traditional IPO. The shares are apportioned or, or allocated to investors the night before. A price is set. But the way it's done is different. And what they asked investors to do, instead of talking to their bankers about the price they wanted to buy shares at and how many shares they wanted to buy, they would input them into a web page, basically. And it, it seems like a pretty simple thing to do, but what it did is it spit out a spreadsheet, basically, of all the investors, how much they wanted, and the prices they were willing to pay. So it gave Unity executives, when it came time to price their shares in the IPO, a much more fulsome understanding of what investors were interested in their shares and at what various prices they would be willing to pay. And so essentially it just delivered much more information to executives that they could then use when it came time to, to price their IPO. And this more transparent approach, I think you refer to it as a TIPO, a transparent IPO, you write that it is starting to become more standard so that actually the legacy of that particular IPO has led to some innovation in the traditional IPO model itself. And the other thing which we haven't gotten into too much is Unity forbid their bankers from talking about prices that investors were willing to pay. An IPO, often Wall Street bankers will talk to each other. They'll give guidance to some investors about, you know, people want to buy shares at $20 here. There's a lot of give and take. There's a lot of talking bilaterally and in, in sort of conversations. Yeah, people talk up or down the price of something because they're all in touch with each other. So it's like the price ends up getting set based on this sort of whisper network I think you just described it as, right? Yes, that's exactly right. And so Unity wanted to get rid of that whisper network. And so by inputting your, the orders into the website, only a very small number of bankers could even see those orders. Goldman designed that for Unity. And now I believe Goldman uses this process for any company that wants to use it. There's also a sort of a slider on it. If you're a company and you don't want any investment bankers to know about what the order book is looking like, which is the spreadsheet of investors and how much they want to pay and how many shares they want, you can do that. But if you want your investment bankers to give a little bit of guidance, to do a little bit of whispering, you can do that. And if you want it to be just like it always was, you can do that. So Goldman designed this sort of very rigid system for Unity but now they use it for everybody and you can decide if you're a company management team how rigid 
you want it to be. It sounds like the introduction of all these alternative ways of doing the IPO has led to a certain amount of competition for the traditional model, and it's led to innovation of the traditional model, even if that traditional model is still the primary way that companies will be taken public. It's still dominant. And it's just interesting to me that now it's not like a direct listing is going to necessarily become the main way that companies first start selling their shares on the stock exchange. But the mere existence of it and the fact that it's legitimate means that bankers really have to be a little bit more flexible and be willing to customize their approach for private companies more than in the past. Do you think that's an accurate way of describing the events of the last half decade or so? Yes, absolutely. The establishment of the direct listing as a legitimate way to go public means that Certainly in 2020 and 2021, every company thinking about going public went into their meetings with bankers saying, hey, should we do a direct listing? Here's what we think it can accomplish for us. And bankers were much more willing to adapt the traditional IPO model in the ways that companies wanted instead of doing a direct listing. And so what it ended up doing was giving company executives more leverage in the conversation and almost more permission to think outside the box when it came time to selling their shares to the public for the first time. You know, one of the things we haven't talked about is SPACs or blank check companies. Those also had a, that's a different thing. They also had a big run up in in this recent tech boom. Yeah, yeah. Real quick, Dakin, I just want to stop for a second to explain what a SPAC is uh, or what a blank check company is. So basically, a SPAC goes public just to raise new money in an IPO, but it doesn't actually do anything, at least not at first. It's not like an actual business, really. It's just like a shell. But then once it raises the money in the IPO, then it uses that money to buy a business, a private business. And then that business will itself be part of a publicly traded company on the stock market. And so it gets around the usual process of going public that way. That's right. Okay. As I was reporting this book, I asked people, all of these innovations, would it be fair and safe for me to trace them all back to Spotify's first direct listing? And every person I asked, it was unanimous. They all said Spotify really uncorked a wave of innovation that everything else sort of stemmed from. And so I think that's really interesting and a really interesting sort of undercurrent to the specific Spotify story. And do you sense that investment banks themselves are becoming more open to doing these non-traditional IPOs? And I ask because I could imagine that some investment bankers would say, look, this is all a fad. And in the case of SPACs, for example, a lot of people do say that they went too far and that it would have been better for those companies to go through a more rigorous process that lets future investors scrutinize them. And they kind of have a point. But I'm wondering if maybe investment banks think that like direct listings are also a fad or if they're open to the idea that direct listings and, and other models are here to stay. I think it remains to be seen. I mean, we are in the middle of the longest IPO drought since the first dot-com boom and crash. You know, it's been more than six months since a tech IPO has taken place. And so in the boom, in the last few years, 
there were so many companies coming public and bankers wanted to take so many of those companies public that they were more willing to entertain other alternatives or non-traditional ways of doing things. But more than one of them, when I talked to them, said, this is because the markets are going up. They've been going up for years. But the minute we have sort of a crash or a decline, you know, that's going to remind company executives that they need to be risk averse or at least mindful of risk. And a lot of these innovations will wash out from the system. And so that's what makes me sort of latch on to this direct listing that we've seen this year and the idea that hopefully it is here to stay and hopefully these innovations that have been come about in the last few years will become sort of the the ongoing part of how companies go public. Yeah, that first direct listing of this year was just last month. It was a company called Bright Green, a cannabis provider. Uh, and Dagan, in terms of the effects on Wall Street, do you think it's likely that direct listings are going to shake things up a lot? I mean, the overall fees are still lower for direct listings than for traditional IPOs. And I'm also just kind of wondering how the investment banks are responding. Like, are they becoming more innovative, more creative themselves? Now, it's worth noting that when Spotify was doing their direct listing, there was some thought that it might be disruptive to Wall Street investment banks. Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley are the top two IPO bankers and have been for years. And as the direct listing came along, there was a lot of talk of like, maybe this is a new model that's going to disrupt Wall Street from the IPO process. But lo and behold, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and throw in Allen & Co. moved very quickly and sort of locked up ownership of the direct listing. So every direct listing that's come since Spotify, and those were the two banks on Spotify, I should mention, every direct listing that's come since then has had Goldman or and Morgan Stanley on it. So it's much less of a threat to them now that they've adapted and established themselves as banks that can also handle direct listings. So one of the nice things or one of the things that I like seeing about the direct listing this year is it sort of starts to disprove this idea that in a bear market, you can't do any innovation where the tech industry is off 20 or 30 percent, if not more. It's not a great year for the S&P 500. And yet we did have one company use a direct listing to list its shares publicly. So that tells me and it tells some of the people I'm talking to that if direct listings are a bull market product, actually, they might be a bear market product, too, in which case they're going to be much more durable. And that model is here to stay. I'm always fascinated by how culture affects the way that companies do things or the way it doesn't affect them sometimes. I'm curious to know if you think that the resistance on Wall Street to these new ways of doing an IPO. And as you mentioned, it was 38 years from Apple's IPO to the first direct listing in 2018. If you think that that resistance is because of the culture of Wall Street or the status quo bias of Wall Street versus just the way that the incentives were aligned for these banks to make money in the past and they just didn't want to diverge from that. I think I've covered bankers for a long time in my career. 
they are a risk-averse lot. One of the first <laughs> things that they think about is how can they avoid risk? And so trying something new and innovating brings added risk. And so to their credit or defense, that is one of the reasons that they bring into these board meetings and one of the reasons why they advise these companies maybe not to do something new and innovative. But without a doubt, the incentive system is stacked in their favor. And as we know, as your listeners know, incentives drive behavior and they drive culture. And so I think as long as those incentives are stacked up the way that they are, we can sort of expect bankers to behave the way that they do. And it's it's almost silly to expect them to act differently. Incentives really drive a lot of behavior, I believe. Bottom line, do you think that because of the evolution of the going public model of the last few years, that the little guy will be better off? That like regular retail investors or even people who do invest their 401ks or relying on pension funds for their retirement, are they going to be better off because of what's happened in terms of these new innovations in companies going public? Well, I will say going back to our discussion of the number of companies that are listed publicly, the boom in listings over the last few years reversed the trend that we'd been talking about. And so it didn't reverse it enough. It didn't bring it back to the late 90s, but it turned things around in a way that we hadn't seen in a long time. And so that on its own, for the reasons that we discussed earlier, is a very positive thing. Having more options and a bull market brought many more companies into the public markets. That is, I think, is an unalloyed good thing. The question is, are retail investors going to pick the right companies or are all of these companies that are coming into the market good companies with strong growth rates and automatically good investments? And that is a much harder story to tell. We talked about blank check firms. You mentioned the fact that many of them have not done well you know, that contributed to more companies being listed publicly, but maybe not all of those companies were ready to be public, or maybe not all of those companies right now are great investments for retail investors. So it's a complicated picture and a complicated question, but looked at objectively, are these innovations bringing more companies into the public markets? Absolutely. And I think that's a good thing. Dagan Campbell is the author. The book is Going Public. It is out literally today. Dakin, congrats, man. Congrats on getting to publication. Thanks a lot. And that's all the time we have for today's show. We'll post a link to Dakin's book, Going Public, in the show notes for today's episode. And I want to quickly add that the book itself is quite a fun read. It has lots of juicy, character-driven plots and suspense, which you might not realize from just having listened to this episode, since we focused more on the mechanics of how this corner of finance works. But the juicy stuff is in the book, and it's a lot of fun. Go buy it. The New Bazaar is a production of Bazaar Audio from me and executive producer Amy Keene. Adrian Lilly is our sound engineer, and our music is by Scott Lane and DJ Harrison of Subfloor Studio. Please follow or subscribe to The New Bazaar on your app of choice, and if you enjoyed today's show, leave us a review or tell a friend. And if you want to get in touch, I'm on Twitter as at Cardiff Garcia, 
or you can email us at helloatbizarreaudio.com. And we'll see you next episode.